I love the way Jeb set up our night tonight. He said, tonight's an incredibly important night. And the temptation would be after a really long and really fun day of hatchet throwing. How many of you did some hatchet throwing? Anyone did some hatchet throwing? Okay. How many of you, uh, how many of you had fun at the snack shack? Anybody go to the snack shack, get some snacks? Okay. The temptation could be that you just kind of zone out. And yet I believe that tonight is the most important night of our time together. That no matter what you think about God tonight, I think God wants to make himself crystal clear to you. And you see, tonight I think every one of us is going to walk away with a, with a greater understanding of how amazing God's love is for us. The question will be, how will you and I choose to respond to God's love. When I was in like maybe the fourth grade, I was in Mrs. Mayflower, Mr. Mrs. Mayfield's class. And Mrs. Mayfield had this thing where every month she would change the seating rotation. And so we sat with different people every single month. And I remember as a fourth grader, I walked in one Monday morning, our seats had been changed, and sitting across from me, was Brittany Muse. Now, here's the thing. Before there was Sarah, and here's the thing. I didn't know my wife, Sarah, then. So before there was Sarah, there was Brittany, okay? She was the coolest girl in school. She was the cutest girl in school. All the guys liked Brittany, and I happened to be sitting across from her. And I remember for those first few weeks, we were kind of getting to know each other and talking to each other. And, and I remember I had this crush that was forming, this, this affection for her. And then all of a sudden, one day, I'll never forget it, we were in class sitting across from each other in the middle of Mrs. Mayfield talking and teaching us when Brittany Muse extended her legs and started playing footsies with me underneath the table. Now, now you guys remember, and I know it's been so long since you were in the fourth grade, but if you can remember back to when you were in the fourth grade, you'll remember this, that when you start playing footsies with someone, the next step is marriage. Like, that's just what happens, right? And so Brittany and I are playing footsies under the desk, and then on that Friday, she said, hey, Eric... How about you come over to my house this weekend and we hang out? And already I was excited. And then she said this, you guys. Then she said it. She said, she said, you could come over on Saturday. I have a trampoline in my backyard. All right. I got a trampoline in my backyard. Then she said this. Then she said, and my mom stalks the cabinet with fruit roll-ups and Capri Suns, you know what I mean, which, which in my fourth grade brain, I'm thinking, that's the best wedding reception ever, right? Like, this is going to be perfect. And so mom and I jump in the minivan, and we drive over to Brittany's house, and my mom and Brittany's mom are talking, and and Brittany and I are jumping on the trampoline, and, and we're eating fruit roll-ups, and we're drinking Capri Suns. We're having the best day ever. And then Brittany says, hey, let's strap on our rollerblades, and let's cruise to the bottom of the hill. 
So we get our rollerblades on and we dry, or we, we, we rollerblade to the bottom of the hill and all of a sudden it hits me, our moms are not around. There are no parents around. And we stop at the bottom of the hill. And Brittany looks me in the eyes and she says, Eric, I want you to close your eyes. You guys, you guys. I mean, I mean, you guys, you guys. All the thoughts go through my head. I'm like, I'm going to have my first real kiss with a real girl. Like, I've kissed mom, but I'm going to kiss a real girl. You know what I mean? And so I close my eyes and I hold out my hands. And while my eyes are closed, Brittany goes and grabs these two, like, clods of dirt. And she comes over, and she dumps them on my hand, right? And I'm like, ah! And the dirt goes everywhere, and she goes, ha, ha, ha! And then just rollerblades away, right? But again, I'm a fourth grader. I'm a fourth grader. I'm like, maybe this is what girls are like. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Needless to say, it was the best Saturday of my life. Monday, Monday rolls around, and I walk in to Mrs. Mayfield's class, and the seats have been changed. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting all the way over here, and Brittany is sitting all the way over here. And sitting across from Brittany is a kid named David. All the girls like David, okay? I mean, this, this homie, this homie, he, he was buff. He could bench press at least 10 pounds. The kid was ripped, all right? He's, he was huge. And from all the way over there, I notice Brittany and David are playing footsies underneath the desk. Not cool, Brittany, not cool. Not cool. Now, now, you may want to laugh at me, but hold, hang with me for a minute. I remember as a fourth grader, my heart breaking in that moment. I remember I had all these feelings for Brittany and now I was experiencing betrayal. You, you know what the, the saddest part of that entire story is? Here's the saddest part of that entire story. That must have been, that must have been like 25 years ago. Okay, that story happened 25 years ago. But as I tell you this story right now, I'm getting a little angry at David still. Like I still got some frustration for him. Why is that? Because sin lingers. Because when somebody hurts you, it's hard to forget. Because sin is not just this thing that we did last weekend that doesn't bring any consequences with it. No, sin has a lingering effect to it. In fact, the problem in the world today is sin. It's the reason for every war. It's the reason for every heartbreak. 
It's the reason behind every pain and sorrow and destruction that you and I will ever experience. The root problem in the world is sin. And this morning we talked about how sin is not just out there and we're not just in proximity to sin and other people's sin spilling over into our lives. But no, friends, we are also participants. That sin isn't just out there. Sin and rebellion from God is in here. We said this morning that sin is any thought, word, or action that is disobedient to God, that is rebellious against God. It's any time we say, hey, God, I'd rather be the Lord of my life than you being the Lord of my life. And I told you this morning that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will always cost you more than you were willing to pay. And sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. And tonight, I want to tell you the most surprising story in the history of the world. I want to tell you the greatest story in the history of the world. I want to tell you about a love that no person could come up with. I want to tell you about a kind of love that only could generate from the heart of God, and it is his love for you. Whether you know him or not, whether you've forgotten about his love or not, this love is for you. Now, we're going to zero in on the gospel and the story of Jesus, the heart of Christianity. But I want to first answer a question before we get there, because maybe some of you have thought, you've seen online, or you've talked with people who have basically told you every religion is the same. That every religion is essentially telling you to be a good person. And and if you really boil down all the major principles, every religion is the same. That's not true. And I want to illustrate it to you this way. There is one difference between the story of Christianity, between the gospel, the story of the Bible, and every other religion. There is one difference between Christianity and in every other religion, and it's this. Every other religion essentially teaches this, that if you say enough prayers, that if you read enough holy scriptures, that if you do enough nice things, one day, maybe, God will accept you. It doesn't matter what religion you look at. They are essentially a climb up the ladder, an upward mobile climb to God, an attempt to grab hold of God, to impress God. And maybe some of you, this is how you're even living out your relationship with God. It's one of the things that drives your perfectionism. It's one of the things that keeps you doing all kinds of good things, although it's motivated from a bad heart, a heart that is wanting to earn God's love. This is very common in our world. It's very common in the way we interact with other people, and it is the story of every other world religion. But the gospel, 
but the story of Jesus. But the good news that we're going to talk about tonight is exactly the opposite. You see, the difference between Christianity and every other religion is this. Christianity is the story of God climbing down the ladder to become like us, to live with us, to empathize with us, to meet us where we are at, to help us get off the rat race of climbing and trying to earn his love. Instead, he climbed down the ladder. In other words, Jesus left heaven with the Father to come down to earth to be with you and I to make it crystal clear how much he loves us. And so the story I want to tell you tonight is the story of God climbing down the ladder. But first, let's start in in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 29, beginning in verse 38, we discover that the Israelites start this practice of dealing with their sin. They've recognized, as we've recognized, that God is holy, that he's perfect, and that their sin is driving them away from God, but God wants to be close with them, and so their sin needs to be dealt with. The text reads like this, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice, the, sacrifice food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent. I will make it holy. The tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. In other words, God says, here's how we're going to deal with your sin. Instead of you dying, because that's the reality of our sin is it brings death, Instead of you dying, we're going to pass on that judgment, pass on that sentence. We're going to deal with the reality of sin by putting it on an animal. But this practice had to be redone over and over again because through this method of dealing with Israel's sin, it was merely a way of passing over their sin, not defeating it once and for all. But you see, God established this system to prepare the hearts of his people for the eventual day when Jesus would come as the final sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 7, the author talks about this. In verse 23, he says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent 
priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So the priests... In the Old Testament, in the days of Moses, and even in the days of Jesus, would sacrifice an animal for their own sins and then on behalf of Israel. But the writer of Hebrews, after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, reflecting on what Jesus did, he said, here's the power in what Jesus did. It's that he was the sacrifice. He was not bringing a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice, the pure, blameless sacrifice. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to make it as clear as I possibly can what Jesus has done for you and I. C.S. Lewis, he talked about how Jesus, he, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Jesus can't just be a good teacher. He can't just be an interesting philosopher. He's either a liar He's a lunatic or he's Lord. You and I have to decide which he is. Tonight, I want to tell you what it means that Jesus is Lord, what he did for you and I, the greatest love story in the history of the world. And then I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Jesus, in his final few days with his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, it says Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and on the way he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus essentially says, here's how you can know that you can actually trust me because I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And if these four things happen, you can trust me. And I want to show you how Jesus did just that. But first, let's pray. Would you close your eyes? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for every single student here. I thank you, God, that your good news, that your gospel message can be trusted. And I pray that you would open every single one of our hearts to see what you miraculously did for us. And then would we respond in faith and in trusting you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was Thursday night and Jesus gathered his disciples together and they ate a meal together. When he broke the bread, he said, do this in remembrance of me. When he poured the cup, he said, this cup represents my blood that's going to be spilled out for the forgiveness of many. To which his disciples said, Jesus, you're crazy. We're just getting started. It's only been three years of your public ministry. What are you talking about? That night he goes into the garden and he pulls Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples with him. And he says, guys, I just need you to pray with me. 
And so they're supposed to be praying, and Jesus goes a little farther into the garden, and, and the Gospel of Luke, which was a historical account of the life of Jesus, written by a physician, written by a doctor, he tells us that Jesus was literally sweating drops of blood that he was experiencing such anguish. He was so overwhelmed. I wonder if some of you have experienced that before. I wonder if some of you in this room have been so overwhelmed by something, Jesus gets that. Because here he is in the garden, very aware of what is about to happen. Not only is he anticipating the kind of death he's going to experience, but he's beginning to feel the full weight of your sin and my sin on his shoulders. He even goes so far as to pray to his father. He says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. Essentially, he says, Heavenly Father, if there's any other way to save humanity, let's go that way. Because he's aware of what's about to happen. Shortly after Jesus is arrested and He's taken in front of a group of people who blindfold him and they start spitting on him and they start hitting him. They start mocking him as the gospels tell us. They start mocking him saying, if you're truly a prophet, why don't you prophesy and tell us who hits you? You see, at this time, Jesus had two very powerful enemies there was the Jewish religious leaders who hated Jesus because he was claiming to be God. He was not just claiming to be a good teacher or a healer. He was very much claiming to be God. In fact, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everyone listening to Jesus, especially the religious leaders, they understood that Jesus was not just talking about him as a good teacher. He was claiming to be God. And for them, that was unacceptable. Well, he had another powerful enemy, and that was the Roman government. You see, they believed and they propagated the message that Caesar was God, that the emperor was God. And so this rabbi, Jesus, claiming to be God, was, was, was ripe for a, a revolt and a revolution. And so these two powerful forces, the religious leaders and the Roman Empire, they get together and decide to arrest Jesus. Well, that night after being mocked, Jesus gets what I would imagine very little sleep, and he's woken up that next Friday morning. On Friday morning, he's brought before Pontius Pilate, who was the, the Roman governor of the day, and and Pontius Pilate can't really figure out why they've arrested Jesus. But he can't help but hear the crowd behind him chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate says, okay, crucify him. But before you do that, flog him. The second thing Jesus said would happen to him. In the Gospels, which were written only a few years after these actual events took place, though the stories of what happened were spread immediately, all they say is that Jesus was flogged because the first listeners, the first hearers of this story would have had pictures in their mind of what that was like. But 2,000 years removed from that, we've, we've forgot. See, Jesus 
was stripped completely naked and he was tied to a pole with his back exposed. And two Roman guards stood on either side of him with whips in their hands, with nails, rock, and glass at the end. And one after the other, they whip Jesus' back. It took two Roman guards because the task was so laborsome. It was so physically demanding that it required two guards to accomplish. In fact, there's historical records of people dying just from being flogged. But after 39 lashes, with the crowds chanting and cheering behind him, as Jesus' backside is being torn apart, just think about this. Jesus, who created people, who knit people together, is now being torn apart by the very ones that he put together. After 39 of those, he's untied and he collapses to the ground and his body's convulsing, trying to stay alive. He's then forced to grab a giant wooden beam and walk about a mile up to the top of this hill. Once he gets to the very top of the hill, they lay Jesus down on the backside of that giant wooden beam and They first feel for the depression in his wrist and they drive a nail through it. They reach out his other wrist over the other end of the wooden beam and they feel for the depression in his wrist and drive another nail through it. They put one foot over the other, drive one last nail through both of his feet into the piece of wood and Jesus is lifted up and he has begun his crucifixion just like he said he would. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus was up on the cross for six hours. When you're being crucified, you don't die from blood loss. You die from suffocation. For six hours, Jesus lifts himself up just to take a breath, causing excruciating pain in his feet. He lets himself down, exhaling, causing excruciating pain in his wrist. For six hours, Jesus is just trying to catch his breath, experiencing excruciating pain. And I I use that word excruciating intentionally because the word excruciating comes from the Latin word excruciare, which literally could be translated out of crucifixion. And so the very word excruciating has a picture of somebody being crucified. And yet Jesus, while he was trying to just catch his breath, said things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As the people he created in his image are mocking them, he continues to be the embodiment of compassion and grace and love. At the end of those six hours, Jesus finally takes one last breath in and says, it is finished. And then he dies. When he said it is finished, what what he was communicating is that sin's control over your life and my life, it's finished. 
Satan having the final word over your life and my life, it's finished. Us being separated from God, it's finished. Uh, You and I needing to go and sacrifice animal after animal, it's finished. Your broken relationship with God has been mended because the power that was breaking your relationship with God has been finished. The debt that you and I had with God as people who have sinned and chosen our own way, it's been canceled. It's been finished. But maybe some of you are going, okay, I just don't fully get this yet. To to help me with this, I need need Nathan. Can Nathan come up here real quick? Can you guys give Nathan a round of applause? Give Nathan a round of applause. (laughs) So here's the thing, here's the thing. If we're not careful, when you and I think about sin, We can sometimes think, okay, sin is that bad decision that I made last weekend that thankfully nobody posted about. Thankfully, my mom and dad didn't hear about. It's in my past, and now I can just move on. But you guys are smart students, and you know that that's not really how sin works. That sin is more complicated. It is more complex. It lingers. It stays with us. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible is honest with us. And it says, actually, you and I are enslaved to our sins. That we're handcuffed to our sins. And so I want you to think, for tonight, I want you to think about this luggage as your baggage. As your sin baggage. And what scripture tells us, and we can trust God's word, is it says the reality is you and I are handcuffed to our sins. So Nathan, here's what I want to do. Give me your hand. You ever been handcuffed before? That's awesome. It happened at church camp. That's so cool. All right, here we go. (laughs) Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from a relationship with God, you and I are handcuffed to our sin. Now, you and I try to do one of two things on our own to deal with our sin. The first thing we try to do is this. We try to hide our sin from others, and all of us are guilty of this. All of us try to put on an act that we have it all together. In fact, we've become really good at it over social media. We've become really good at it in the stories we tell people. We try to hide our sin from others, trying to convince God, trying to convince ourselves, trying to convince others that we are fine by ourselves. And so here's what I want you to do, Nathan. I want you to try to hide your sin from everyone right here. Go ahead and try to hide it. No, you got to stay out here, bro. You got to stay out here. Nice try, dude. Try to hide your sin from others. All right, now Nathan, I can tell, is an incredibly gifted young man. Not so great at this. How many of you can still see Nathan's sin? Raise your hand. Here's the second thing that we try to do. If we can't hide our sin, we try to run away from our sin. In other words, we try to do this. We switch friend groups. We switch social media accounts. We try everything we can to run away from our sin. In other words, we try to run up the ladder and earn God's love. Here's what I want you to do, Nathan. I want you to run right here, just on this little part of the stage here. I want you to run from your sin. (laughs) All right, Nathan, come on over here. Try to run from your sin. All right, all right, now, now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Okay. Nathan, obviously 
obviously should have tried out for the Olympics, right? Good, good runner, good runner. But you saw what I saw. Wherever Nathan went, his sin went with him. You see, what sometimes drives our perfectionism, and if we're not careful, what sometimes drives our good behavior is either an attempt to hide our sin or to run away from it. And if we're not careful, we will try to climb up the ladder to earn God's love. But here's the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the good news of Jesus. Is that he doesn't want you and I to try to earn his love. Instead, he wants you and I to receive his love and then live a life that responds to that love. Not trying to earn it again, but simply responds to his love. And so what happens on the cross 2,000 years ago is Jesus took your sin, he took my sin, he took the whole sins of the world on himself as the perfect blameless sacrifice. He dealt with sin once and for all so that you and I could be free. And you see, this wasn't something, hold on, Nathan, this wasn't something that Nathan could do on his own. This wasn't something that a future career, a future relationship, a future college, a future accomplishment could ever do for Nathan. This was, in fact, only something God could do. Can you guys give Nathan a round of applause? Give Nathan a round of applause. And so students, you got to get this. You got to get this. God, this is how good and loving he is. God prioritized your life over his own life. God held nothing back to win you back. But friends, that was only the third thing that Jesus said would happen. The fourth thing Jesus said what happened is that he would come back from the dead. As a way of saying, if I accomplish all four of these things, you can actually trust me. And because you're smart students, you should be asking the question, why in the world would I ever believe that a dead guy came back to life? That doesn't make sense. I've never seen that before. That's a great question. And in fact, I want to press it even farther. And you need to hear this. This is the linchpin. This is the center of it all. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he did not die for your sins. You can't just believe Jesus died on the cross. Because if he didn't actually come back from the dead, then you and I are still in our sins. And maybe you're going, Eric, is that even biblical? Yes. I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And because Paul knew that the resurrection was the key piece of evidence that validates everything Jesus did, he gave us some really good reasons to believe he rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, he at least gives four reasons why, Jesus, why you can believe Jesus rose from the dead. I want to just give you two of them. 
and I'm going to spend here, we're going to get a little like kind of heady for a minute. But it's important that we do this. Because the last thing I want is you to make some emotional decision tonight. Because you're feeling something that can't. Feelings are important. God works through our feelings. But I want you tonight, my hope and my desire is that you respond to Jesus tonight because you've become convinced by the Holy Spirit that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that he actually died for your sins, that he actually is the Lord of the universe. And so it only makes sense to trust him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, first reason he gives us for believing that Jesus rose from the dead is this. He says that Jesus, after he came back from the dead, he appeared to all of his disciples. Why is this important? Well, here's why. Because on Friday, when Jesus was being crucified, none of his disciples were willing to die with him. They loved Jesus, they liked him, they appreciated his teachings, they had changed his, their lives, but they were not willing to die with Jesus. And then on Sunday, they saw with their own eyes that Jesus was back from the dead. And what history tells us through original primary sources is that all of these disciples, they scattered into all parts of the world telling everybody, hey, I've been following this guy, Jesus. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead so you can trust him. You can make him the Lord of your life because I saw it with my own eyes. And do you know what it cost them? Their lives. One of the disciples was crucified upside down. Why? Because he couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling the world, Jesus is Lord and he rose from the dead. One of the disciples was boiled in oil and banished from his family, imprisoned on an island. Why? Because he couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling the world, Jesus is my Lord and he rose from the dead. Many of the disciples were tortured, beaten, beheaded. They experienced such brutal treatment. How in the world could you explain that? How does it make sense that this group of guys on Friday aren't willing to die for Jesus, and then on Sunday, they're not only willing to give up their lives, but they do. The only logical explanation is they actually saw Jesus come back from the dead. Second reason I want to share with you that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15 is he says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his brother, to Jesus' own brother, James. Why is that significant? Here's why. Because if you read the Gospels, the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find out that the siblings of Jesus thought he was crazy. They thought he had lost his mind. They doubted that he was who he said he was. They thought he was crazy. They tried to convince him to just come home. But then in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the followers of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus, after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, all of a sudden we read in Acts chapter 1 that James was praying with the disciples. Something happened. Something changed in his heart. 
What happened is he actually saw Jesus come back from the dead. And it gets crazier. James becomes like the pastor, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And it costs him his life. During a political transition of power, a group of leaders actually push James off a building. He lands on the ground and a crowd swarms around him with clubs and rocks and they beat James until he dies. And they did not beat him. They did not murder him because he was the brother of Jesus. They murdered him because he couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling everybody, my brother is my Lord. And my brother rose from the dead. Can I just ask you a question? What would it take for you to convince your brother that you were God? How would you do that? How would you do that? It would, it would be, be unfathomable. And yet James, catch this, catch this. James, who starts out skeptical and thinks his brother is crazy, ends up giving his life for him because he saw him come back from the dead. Students, Jesus was mocked, he was flogged, he was crucified, and he rose from the dead. The question, the question for you and I is what and how will we respond to that? In John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions or our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A number of months ago, maybe a year ago, there was a young man in our, in our high school ministry that I lead who every time he would come on Wednesday nights, he was just angry and just seemed frustrated and he would never talk, wouldn't say a word. On this one particular night, his name's Zyking, on this one particular night, Zyking showed up and I could tell there was something extra bothering him. And so I just asked him, I said, hey, do you want to talk? What's going on? And he began to share with me about what it was like for him to be in a home without his dad and, and his mom having a boyfriend coming in and, and that boyfriend threatening to kick him out of the house, the instability and the anger and the pain and, and all the things that were going on in his life. And after listening to him, I just shared the gospel with him just like I shared it with you. I told him about how great Jesus loved him, how much Jesus loved him, that, that even in all the painful circumstances he was living in, that Jesus loved him enough to die on the cross and rise from the dead. 
and that he could be saved, that he could have hope, like real hope. And I asked him if he wanted to receive Christ, if he wanted to make Jesus the Lord of his life, and he said yes. And so we prayed together, and then after we prayed, he did something that I've never seen him do before. He started smiling, like this huge, contagious smile. I have this picture of him smiling. I've never seen this kid smile before this moment. And then he asked me this. He said, Eric, what's happening to me right now? He said, what's happening to me right now? I'm feeling all this joy and this peace and like this weight has been lifted on my my shoulders. What is happening right now? And I said, brother, the Holy Spirit is entering into your life and you're experiencing salvation. You see, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago changed this young man's life. And what Jesus did 2,000 years ago could change yours as well. I told you this before, but the arc of Scripture is clear. God loves you. And he doesn't just say he loves you. He showed his love for you. The question of Scripture is not, does God love you? The question of Scripture is, will you love God in return? I want every one of you to close your eyes right now. This morning, I had you think about the sin that you had been participating in. And now I want you to think about where do you stand with God? What kind of relationship do you have with Him? Maybe you've been going to a Christian school your whole life, maybe you're new. But if you're honest, you've been climbing the ladder, trying to do all the right things, and you've never actually received his love and his forgiveness. That after tonight, you recognize, oh, what Jesus did on the cross, he didn't just do for everyone else. He did it for me. And the reason he did that was he wanted me to be forgiven for all of my sins. He wanted me to be free, and he wanted me to follow him. Tonight, with every eye closed, if you're in this room and you want to start following Jesus right now, you want to say yes to Jesus, that you want to receive his forgiveness and make him the Lord of your life, right now, I want you to boldly raise your hand in the air. I want you to raise your hand in the air as a way of saying, Jesus, I want to receive you for the first time as my Lord and Savior. God, I thank you for these hands that are raised. I thank you for these students that are making not an emotional decision, but a real decision because they've encountered your love and they're aware of what you have done for them. Holy Spirit, I pray that they would receive right now your forgiveness, that your Holy Spirit would enter into their lives and that you truly would become their Lord. With every eye closed, there's some of you here who you were following Jesus at one point, but if you're honest, you're not anymore. You have not been following Jesus, and and you realize, man, the reason God brought me up to camp was to get me back with him. 
And I'm not going to make anything else the Lord of my life. I want to I get back to following Jesus and loving him with my life. If that's you tonight, I want you to raise your hand as a way of saying, Jesus, I'm coming back. I'm, I'm recommitting. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm choosing to follow you, Jesus, again. God, for these students, I pray that they would remember that you don't hold grudges. You hand out grace. That you love them and that you are so glad they're back. You can go ahead and put your hands down and, and I want you to open your eyes right now. You guys, something incredibly special just happened in this space. There were so many of you who made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time or to, to recommit to him, to come back to him. You said, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life for the first time, or Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life again. And scripture says that, that all of heaven is celebrating right now, that there's this big party going on in heaven because of what has happened in this room. And I want us to touch heaven for a minute and to join them in this celebration. And I want you to know that, that you're not supposed to follow Jesus alone, but you have teachers and friends and classmates who want to help you follow Jesus. And so on the count of three, if you raised your hand for either of those groups, I want you to stand up on the count of three. And the rest of us are going to applaud God. We're going to worship God by making a joyful noise. We're going to thank God for what he has done in this place. And we're going to come alongside you and help you and support you. And so on the count of three, if you raised your hand, I want you to stand up as a way of you saying yes to Jesus. One, two, three. Wow. Now, while you're standing, stay standing, stay standing. I just have two questions for you, and I need you to, like, passionately respond. I need you to out loud respond to these two questions. The first question is this. For those of you that are standing, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, and do you believe that he rose from the dead? And are you committed to following Jesus for the rest of your lives wherever he leads you? Yeah. Then welcome to the family and welcome back to the family. You can have a seat. Let me pray for us. Oh God, you are so good. Your love is so great. I thank you that your gospel that was that was that was entered the world 2,000 years ago, the good news of Jesus, that it wasn't just for them, but it was for all of us. And that God, because you came as a man, died on the cross, and rose from the dead, that power is still reigning here in this place. Thank you that for those of us who have called on your name and made you the Lord of our lives, that we don't have to climb the ladder, we don't have to earn your love, you have given it to us, and we are eternally secured in your family, and that we get to live for you now and live with you for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.